So we folded a diamond today to teach us something. Uh, remember the first week we folded a heart, right? Because God folds us with his love. He shapes us with his love. And then last week we folded a dove, sort of. And um, that's teaching us about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit God uses to fold us into his image. And today we folded a diamond um, because diamonds start off as what? Coal. Coal, right? And when you apply intense heat and pressure, they become beautiful gemstones, right? Much more beautiful than this, right? So today we're going to talk about trials and how God uses trials in our life to shape us into his image. Now, fair warning. This is not maybe the most enjoyable message you will ever hear, okay? Um, because we're going to talk about the difficult things in life and how God uses them. And there are a lot of different kind of trials that we have in our life. Some of them are trials we do. Like we sin and then there are consequences of that sin and we experience the ripples of our own actions, right? I've been there. I'm sure all of us in the room have been there. Then there are the kinds of trials that come from the hand of other people. People say mean things to us. They stab us in the back. Other people sin and we get to reap the benefit of those things. We get hurt by other people. Those are some trials that we experience. Uh, some trials exist in this world simply because the world is being unraveled due to sin at its very core. So at the very beginning of time when sin entered the world, it was like a thread being plucked on a sweater. And slowly over time, the world is unraveling. And, and so we experience things like devastating illness and um, natural disasters and things in which the world groans and falls apart. Those are trials we experience that are nobody's fault. They're just because we live in a fallen, imperfect, broken world. Um, oh, we're getting way ahead. Um, where did that all come from? Okay, we'll just stay there. I'll control the slides. Um, and, uh, and so um, we live in this fallen, broken world where things kind of ravel apart. Um, there's another kind of trial that we rarely think about because we don't like to. Um, but scripture talks about it, I'm finding, in many, many, many places. And it's the trial that comes from the hand of God, where God presses into us in a specific way for a specific period of time, for a specific purpose to shape us, and it's for our own good. And we don't like to think that God can press into us in those ways, but scripture will reveal to us that he does. And so I wouldn't be doing my due diligence in preaching if I only talked about the kind of trials that come from the world, we must also acknowledge the hand of God in our life in this way and how he uses all of those trials to shape us for his glory. So um, to frame our understanding this morning, two verses to start off with. The first is in Luke chapter four. I'm going to stick it up here in just a minute. Um, this is on the, the heels of Jesus being baptized. So Jesus has been in the Jordan River, and uh, he walked in, John the Baptist baptized him, and then the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, right? And God's voice says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, okay? And then he gets up out of the water, and here's where we end up. And Jesus was now full of the Holy Spirit and returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit 
into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Let's time out there. Who led Jesus? It's not a trick question. It's on the screen. Who led Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. And where did he lead Jesus? To the wilderness. wilderness. For what purpose? To be tempted and tested for 40 days. So, at the hand of God, Jesus was led into 40 days of temptation. You ever think about that? It was God's will. God's will for Jesus to experience those things. Uh, Let's frame our understanding this morning. And he ate nothing during those days. Jesus was hangry. By the end of those 40 days, can I get an amen from people who've been angry, right? Um, When they were ended, he was hungry. Now, right after this verse, guess who shows up? The devil. Always great when you're hangry and tired and you've been tested and tried and you are at your wits end. It's really great when the devil himself shows up and says, boy, have I got a deal for you. When you are at your weakest, it seems like the trials get bigger. This is what Jesus is experiencing. 40 days without food. 40 days of experiencing all kinds of trials. 40 days and then the devil shows up and tries to give him an out so that he does not need to go to the cross. Jesus was led by God's will into the wilderness to be tempted and tested. Now, Another verse to frame our understanding is in John 16, 33, Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, if you read the context of that verse, it's not a lot of things that made me feel peaceful before that. So he did this like whole speech to his disciples and it was about how the world's going to come to an end and there's going to be war and tribulation and famine and you're like this. This does not sound great. I've said these things so that you may have peace. You're like, well, I'm trying. I've said these things so that you may have peace. Then he continues, in the world, you will have tribulation. So if Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and everything that he says is truthful because the character of God is true, Then when Jesus says, you will have tribulation, what does that mean? Right. Like this isn't, again, this is not a trick question. You will have troubles in your life. Jesus is very clear about this. You will not escape it. Sometimes we think that when we become a Christian, life gets easy. It's all roses and candy and fluffy puppies and, you know, whatever is nice in your worldview, right? Um, And the reality is when we read the story of Scripture and the people who became Christ followers, not just in word but in actual action, their lives got significantly harder. Um, And the more they followed Jesus, the harder their life got to the point that many of them died. Um, In this world, you will have tribulation. But he continues. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's the great hope Jesus wants us to know. There will be tribulations in this world. You will experience them. 
But that's only in this world. He doesn't say for eternity. He doesn't say in the world to come. In this world, you will have tribulations. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Meaning, at some point in time in the future, when God's will deems it to be appropriate, then God will come back and bring us to heaven with him, and there will be no more trials and tribulations, and no more sorrow, and no more tears, and no more pain, and all that kind of stuff. But in this world where we reside, it's not our home, it's our temporary home. While we are here, we will have troubles. And Jesus was not exempt from that while he was in this world, right? He experienced trials and tribulations pretty much every day of his adult life. Now, there's three main passages I want to read to you. Um, and each one uh, kind of sheds some light on how God uses trials to form us into his likeness. Um, all of these references are from New Testament letters. Uh, where the disciples are writing to the churches, explaining, yes, I know, your life is hard, but here's how you can bring glory to God in the process. And it seems like the more I read the New Testament letters, the more I find they are full of, um, don't forget to live a holy life, and don't forget to choose joy in the midst of trials. That's a lot of the New Testament letters. And we're going to pick out some of those ones this morning that are quite significant. Uh, the first reference is in James chapter 1. You might inkling in the back of your brain go, that sounds familiar when it comes to trials of various kinds. So let's see what James has to say to us today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, right then and there we can stop. We already know that the church is in trouble. The church is enduring trial because they are dispersed. This is not James writing to one location where all the people happen to be loving Jesus and singing Kumbaya around a campfire. The church is dispersed all over the known world at this point because of persecution. So James is writing this letter and in his very first sentence he is acknowledging Part of your life as a Christian is the fact that you are scattered because you follow Christ. There in that alone is struggle. Perhaps families have been split up. Perhaps people have lost their lives. Perhaps um, there are widows and orphans because lives have given to the name of Christ. I am writing to the tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. <sighs> Don't you love that verse? You read that verse, you're like, yeah, I just, I love various trials in my life. I just, I just can't wait to experience more of them. In fact, I get up every morning and I look forward to the trials that I will experience. Anybody? Put your hand down, Jim. Um, you're my trial right now. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, no, we don't get up with joy looking forward to the trials that we have. But someone who has lived through, James, watching Jesus live his life, he sits back and he looks at the church and he goes, you need to learn to count it joy when you meet trials. Because there is something in that that will perfect you towards the likeness of Jesus. Now, 
For the testing of your faith, that trial that you have, the trial produces steadfastness. Meaning, when you experience the trial and you lean into faith rather than your own flesh to solve it, when you lean into faith, you produce this steadfast spiritual muscle that helps you endure the trials that come, the various kinds of trials. Now it continues. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't give up partway through. Don't say, throw your hands in the air partway through a difficult circumstance in life and say, I give up. I'm just going to do it my own way or I'm going to go lick my wounds or I'm going to give up. No, let it have its full effect so that you can be found perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. We long to be made perfect. We desire to be made perfect. And if we don't, we really should, right? Because we should be desiring to be made in the perfect image of Christ so that God can root out all of that which isn't him and fill us with all that is. And this is one of the ways that he makes us perfect. Enduring trials of various kinds. Now, various kinds is kind of a catch-all term. Uh, think about um, big trials and little trials. Significant trials and insignificant trials. So, um, for example, um, devastating illness. That's a significant trial, right? Scripture would tell us that in the midst of that significant trial, we are to count it joy. Because that trial will produce in us steadfastness. And when seen through to the end, perfection of character. Tornado knocks a tree into your house. Significant trial. Steadfastness. See it through to the end. You don't not put a roof on at that point, do you? You don't give up and be like, I will never have a roof again. Steadfastness to see the roof repaired but also, why not apply that same steadfastness to your spiritual growth and let God work in you in those areas? But what about those little trials that we don't think about? This means various trials. Various means various, all kinds of things, right? Someone cuts you off in traffic, right? Or gets into the grocery store line in front of you and you have two items and they have a cart full. Various trials, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You get frustrated when little things like that happen. Sometimes those things drive your flesh to the brink even more than the bigger ones. And you, you immediately snap to anger. But God says in those moments, those are trials. Trials to choose faith, not flesh. Trials to choose to glorify God and to endure an extra five minutes in line. And say, maybe I have an opportunity to speak to someone about Jesus in these five minutes. Endure those opportunities that God gives you with joy. Various trials. Now, everything that we talk about today has to be put in reference to Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't ask us to do something he didn't already do. So the example we follow is Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 22, uh, Jesus is about to be arrested. And he knows, he knows it's coming. He knows he's going to be betrayed. Um, and so he goes with a handful of friends to the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys may be familiar with this story. 
And he tells his friends to pray, and he will go pray somewhere else. Um, and, and, and this is a moment in Jesus' life where he leads us to an understanding about submitting our faith in steadfastness versus letting our flesh rule us in the time of trials. And, and this verse reads like this. He withdrew from them a stone's throw in the garden, and he knelt down and he prayed. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Meaning, take me away from this trial. I don't want to do this. Please take this option off the table. Rough translation. If you are willing, remove the cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is teaching us something here. He's saying, listen, when various trials come, there is an opportunity to either do it your own way, and Jesus could have. I mean, he could have said, no, I don't want to go to the cross. No, um, I won't go willingly. I will fight you every step of the way because it's going to hurt and I'm not going to like it. You're going to kill me. I don't want that. But instead, he chose to submit his flesh to the will of the Father. In doing so, he humbled himself. As Philippians would say, he humbled himself to the point of death. And he taught us that choosing faith produces steadfastness. How was he able to endure the trial of the trials and the beatings and the crucifixion? Steadfastness of faith. That's not something you get instantaneously. You practice that with various trials, little ones, big ones, over and over and over again. Think about Stephen, um, the first martyr in the Christian church. Um, he must have practiced this idea of finding joy in the midst of trials uh, and allowing it to produce in him a steadfastness because he was preaching about Jesus when they stoned him to death. And while he was being pummeled with heavy rocks, um, not little rocks, when they stone you, they don't, you know, plink you with, you know, D1 style stuff, but it's, you know, substantial rocks. He cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The same words of Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. You don't accidentally forgive people who are killing you unless you have chosen a steadfast life after Christ. Unless your life has been formed by various trials and practice, and when you are pressed, Christ comes out of you, not the flesh. Trials perfect us in that way. So trials perfect our faith. That is one way that we are shaped by trials. Another way is found in Philippians 3, 3 through 11. We are the circumcision, meaning we're the, uh, that's an Old Testament reference, meaning we're the covenant people of God. We belong to him, and we worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul says, have reason to put confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And I think this verse is funny, because he's saying, listen, it's not a competition about who has the most stars on their badge. But if it were, I would win. That's what this verse says. Do you, do you get that with me? I think that's funny. He's saying it's not a competition. Really, it's not. We, we don't put confidence in the things that we have achieved in the flesh. But if anyone thinks he has reason for flesh, I have more. It's me. I've got the most reason to boast in the flesh. That said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Here's my list of things I can boast in. 
I am of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know the language. I was raised in the culture. Um, as to the law, I am a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. You can't find a mark on my record. I got straight A's. I'm the top of the class. I'm the best there is. You cannot find flaw in my Jewishness, whether it's cultural or political or religious. I'm the guy. The standard you have to meet looks like Paul, he says. But whatever I had gained in this life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I'm willing to throw out my degrees. I'm willing to throw out my social status. I'm willing to be considered an outcast. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from my own, or not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Trials produce righteousness, but it comes through suffering. Paul says, listen, I could have had a great life living according to the flesh, living according to what we would call works righteousness. I had earned my status. I had earned my gold stars. But then he came to realize I need to lay aside every bit of things that I have built for myself in my name. And not just lay them aside, but I need to consider them so worthless that I will never pick up works righteousness again because I want to take on Christ's righteousness. And the way that I do that is by sharing in his sufferings for his glory. Now for Paul, that meant often getting beaten and arrested and called names and run out of town and being shipwrecked and all those kinds of things, right? Um, but it's this laying aside of things that's really hard, right? Because we build ourselves up in the flesh and, and we get this identity about who we are and we're the guy that makes people laugh or we're the, the nicest person in class or um, we're the best business owner, we have the most financial sense or all these things that we build about ourselves, we understand our identity to be and we need to learn what Paul learned. We need to count them all as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Hebrews um, phrases it a little bit like this. Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and every weight which hinders us and clings closely to us. Very clear idea. If we are going to run the race with endurance, right? Endure the trials in faith, then we need to like shave some stuff off our works righteousness. We cannot run with endurance when we are carrying our flesh and works righteousness upon us. We need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and then run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to look to Jesus who is the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy 
he counted it all joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame, despised the cross, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. He knows what it is to suffer. And Jesus, man, he, I mean, if you look at Paul, Paul had a great list of works righteousnesses, right? But Jesus, while he was in the flesh, he could have claimed a few good things himself. I am the son of God, the mighty one of old. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the lion and the lamb. I was before and I will be after. The way, the truth, and the life. The bread of life. He has a list that goes on and on to describe his credentials. The scripture tells us in Philippians that we should have the same mind that Jesus had, meaning the way we think should be modeled after the way Jesus thinks. And Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped at. So instead, he laid aside all of the things that he could have claimed as God. And instead, he took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men into a fallen world with a fallen, broken body. And then, being found in this human form, he continued even more so to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, so Jesus is this example for us that says, if we desire righteousness, we must learn to suffer like Jesus. We must learn to set aside that which we could claim, but we need to consider it rubbish and instead consider the surpassing value of knowing God. It is far better to know Jesus Christ than to know how good you are at something. It is far better to know Jesus than to one-up someone in an argument. It is far better to know Jesus than to have all the money and status in the world. But sometimes we forget that, and so we live according to works. And God says, don't live like that. Cast all that aside and let me produce in you righteousness so that you can share in the resurrection. Jesus died, yes, but he rose again. And he calls us to do the same. In fact, in scripture, it says, right, we are dead to our sin and alive in Christ. That means we take our flesh and it's been crucified with Christ. And then we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. We have cast aside the flesh. We consider it rubbish. And we then live with the righteousness of Jesus in us, which means we have the endurance to suffer like him. Even if it means we go to our death for Christ. Now, if I ask the question, who would be willing to suffer for Christ all the way to the death? Don't raise your hands. But it's a question you should consider. Because it could be called of any Christ follower to give their life for the sake of the gospel. And it happens regularly, but not in the United States. We have it really easy in the United States. There are many, 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 many of our brothers and sisters who share in Christ's suffering and become like him in his death for the glory of God. And they count it all joy because they know Christ and will attain the resurrection. We should have that same passionate desire to go all the way if necessary for the glory of God. 
This is one way he shapes us, to produce in us that righteousness. Now, um, one more thing before we close. 1 Peter 4. It reads like this. Beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. I.e., just come to expect it. We live in a world, lots of trials. Okay? Um, don't be surprised as if you think something strange was happening to you. And we do this all the time. Whoa! How could this be happening to me? Why is this happening? Woe is me, not again. Oh, this is miserable. I am so shocked that this is happening to me right now. I didn't do anything to deserve this, right? We say these things in our hearts, if not out loud. But the scripture is really clear. There will be fiery trials. Spoiler alert. Don't be surprised. Be ready for it. But instead of being surprised, you should rejoice because you are sharing Christ's suffering that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, unpack this one with me. You are sharing Christ's suffering so that you can also rejoice when his glory is revealed. The connection is, if you are not sharing in his suffering now, you are not really walking with him. Therefore, when his glory is revealed, you may not notice it or be able to participate in it. True Christ followers, not just seats on Sunday, not just memorize the Bible for the sake of memorizing it, but true Christ followers, sharing Christ's suffering, and that is part of the way they will be able to in, embrace the coming glory of God one day. It is through suffering that we truly get to know Christ and his grace. Apart from suffering, we do not understand Jesus. It is through his suffering that we have life. And we are called to live that life as well. There is a direct correlation, according to scripture, between us sharing in suffering now and us enjoying his glory later. When it talks about the crowns that we receive, it talks in, in Revelation and several other places that uh, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus, the throne. Those are earned through suffering, through trial, through difficulty, through persecution, through death. There were just some Christians beheaded this week. Um, they have earned their crown of righteousness. They were steadfast in trial, joyfully, all the way to the end. There was a gigantic church in China, a megachurch in China, that was leveled to the ground this past week. Did you guys hear about it in the news? It's not talked about it very often, is it? Uh, you got to look for this kind of stuff. One of the largest churches in China, Christian churches, leveled to the ground because you can't worship Jesus freely. But that's not going to stop them. They're going to do it joyfully. And you can find snippets of interviews with those Christians um, on small media publications, uh, Christian publications that seek out those opportunity stories to share and keep us aware. Um, and you can, in, you, you can read the interviews with some of those Christians and they, they reiterate the fact that the church is not a building and they don't need the building to worship. And I read those stories and it strengthens me but we have a nice building, and we have it easy. And I want the kind of faith that they have. 
But that kind of faith is produced through trial. Uh, it continues in, in chapter uh, 4, verse 19. Hard verse here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. How does that sit with you guys? I struggle with this one. The original language leans this into the direction of um, it's God's will that certain sufferings come upon us. And I'm not sure I like how that sounds, honestly. Like, as your pastor, I'm just going to be really transparent. Because I know God not to be a jerk. Right? He doesn't sit up there and think, how can I make them miserable? But several places in Scripture, this being one of them, it gives us the idea that God chooses moments, situations, pressures in our life to intentionally form us. He's the one that knows us best. If we are going to look like him, he is going to have to get his hands on us and form us with some heat and time and pressure. And some of those things are intentional on his behalf. And he does not abandon us to those things. He is with us in those things. He is urging us to lean on him in those things. But there are times when we will suffer according to God's will. It continues, though. Therefore, when you are suffering according to God's will, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while you do good. Suffering is no excuse to stop serving God. We stop serving God when we start complaining. Suffering is no excuse to stop serving God. We are commanded multiple times to find joy in the midst of our suffering. This verse tells us that when we are suffering, even if it's at the hand of God, we are to run to God, trust our soul to him, and continue serving him and praising him, finding joy in the moments that we have. Uh, I think it's in the book of Job. Um, I thought it was going this way. Uh, I think it's in the book of Job. Yea, though he crushes me, I will still praise him. Job wrestles with the idea that it is God who permitted all of the inflictions that he is enduring. And he talked heartily with God about it. He struggled with God on it. But when people said, you should just curse God and die, he refused. He still trusted his soul to the creator, to the one who loved him, even though he was permitting these things to go on in his life. Again, let's, let's look at Jesus' example here. Um, in Luke chapter 23, on the cross, Jesus gives this example. Now, now when Jesus died on the cross in our place uh, for our sins, um, when he suffered and endured the trial, he took all of the wrath of sin for all time onto his body, which means your sins and mine were put on Christ. And we know that sin means separation from God and that Christ took that and was separated so that we wouldn't be. He was separated so we could be joined with God. So there's a moment in the crucifixion story 
when all of the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus for the sins of the world that have been, that are, and that are to come. And in that moment, Jesus is separated from the Father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the sky went dark and everything rumbled and, and the veil was about to be torn in two. And God the Father turned his back on Christ the Son. I don't know how that happened, but it did. Separation. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice while he was separated from God, while he was suffering, while he was under a great trial. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then having said that, he breathed his last. Jesus is teaching us something. A, if Christ suffered, we should expect no less. If Christ suffered on this earth, we too are going to suffer. He explicitly told us that. Um, and Jesus trusted his soul to a faithful creator while doing the best good that has ever been done. Does that make sense? It was the worst thing that ever happened in human history, crucifying the Lord. But for our souls, it was the best thing that was ever done. And while he was suffering at the will of God, this just connected in my brain. It says in scripture that it, pleases, it pleased God to crush him in the Old Testament. It was God's will that Jesus died this way. It was God's will that he suffered this way. And while Jesus was suffering a heinous, horrible death, separated from God because of the sins of the world, he still trusted his soul to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. That's the example he gives us. That's how we should live our lives. We will never experience what Jesus experienced because Jesus experienced it for us. We will get cut off at the grocery store line. We will experience illness, relationship troubles, all kinds of trials. Trials of various kinds, right, as James put it. The idea is to be formed to be like Christ. To look at the trial in front of us to choose joy in the face of it. To walk in it steadfastly. To cast aside all of the flesh and sin that wants to stick to us. To embrace the righteousness that Christ gives us. And no matter what you face, no matter how bad it gets, even if it's from the hand of God, to continue to trust your soul to God and do good. You can serve God joyfully in the midst of a great trial. That's the example Jesus gives us. And that's the example we have to walk in. I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team is going to come up. This is an opportunity 
for you to engage with God in your suffering. I hope that you guys don't have a suffering thing in your life right now. I hope that there's nothing in your life that's causing you pain. But the reality is we live in a world where pain and suffering exist. And everybody has got something different. So this is an opportunity for you to do a Job thing and say, though he crushes me, yet I will praise him. Or, to quote Job again, the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang that this morning already, right? That's just scriptural truth. Um, to submit your trials to the Lord and ask him to lead you in steadfastness, to give you joy along the way. You can even come and partake in some of the elements of communion that we have. We have a few available for those that desire to partake in the body and the blood of Jesus, knowing that this is the way he poured out his life for you so that you would not experience an eternal trial separated from God, but that you may attain the resurrection and have life eternal with no suffering. And it's because Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. Maybe you know someone in a great trial at the moment and they need prayer. The altar is open for any and all of these things. So let's learn to rejoice in the midst of our sorrows in the presence of God this morning. Father, I'm the first to admit this morning that I don't like the idea that trials exist and that some of them might come from your hand. You designed a trial for Jesus and it was the cross. And you told us that it pleased you to crush him, to lay on him the iniquity for us. And you look at Job's life and you permitted a whole bunch of really painful things. And then even though you're God and you can do anything, you still let your believers go to their death for your glory. And somehow, in all of that, we are made in your image. We don't want trials. We don't want suffering. We only want the good stuff. But if we live on a diet of good stuff, we will never truly know you. So Lord, this morning, will you teach us, teach our hearts to understand suffering through your eyes? Will you teach us about faith? Will you teach us about steadfastness? Will you help us cast aside the things that cause us to stumble along the way? Grant us your righteousness. Will you help us suffer with joy, praising you no matter what happens in our life? All for your glory. So we give you our lives and our questions and our concerns and our sorrows 
and our joys. And we want you to do something with it now as we worship you. Yours is the only name that we can trust. You are the example that you have laid for us. So as we sing, as we worship, as we pray, do what you believe is best for each one of your child's hearts. We exalt you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.